This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church. A little, little brisk this morning. You know, at home, it's like, all right, when do we commit on turning on the heat? It's like, yeah, it's going to be like 73, but it's kind of cold, and we have yet to commit to fire up that boiler. Um, I think it's time to commit. We'll, we'll take a poll after today. Um, no, it's good, good to see you all. My name is Neil. I serve as one of the pastors here, and we're continuing on in our uh, series in the book of Matthew. Um, and in case you, you haven't noticed, it's been a, a season, a prolonged season of heightened tension, relational tension, different perspectives and hot takes on different issues. Um, and it's, it's kind of reintroduced in a lot of our conversation, this idea of differentiated presence or differentiated leadership. And it's a concept that uh, was popularized by Edwin Friedman about 15 years ago. Um, he describes it in his book, A Failure of Nerve, as, as regulating one's own anxiety, knowing where one ends and another begins. When we're not differentiated, we begin to like, attach our emotional state uh, to, to other people and their emotional state or to an organization or kind of culture more broadly and kind of ride the wave with wherever they go. Uh, and, and from that place, we can seek to, to either appease others or attack others, but just kind of like we're, we're, we're kind of enveloped into the emotional state of another. But when we can walk and engage with self-differentiation, this differentiated leadership, we're able to be present and attentive to the emotions and realities around us, like, like the needs of the people around us, 
but not be kind of brought into or sucked into the emotional state of them, which allows us to, to rightly challenge, but also love and strengthen and help and encourage. You know, I, I find kind of a mixed response in my own um, experience of, man, some places I, I feel like I do this well, other times I feel like parenting so often, just easy to get sucked into the emotional state of my children. Um, but it's so refreshing, so refreshing to look at the life of Jesus and to see how he operated with this perfect self-differentiation. Uh, able to, to sense the emotional realities around him, uh, to see the needs, the hurt, the pain, uh, to, to, yes, realize the anxiety of those around him, uh, but not be sucked into those emotional states. Uh, he, he was able to, to serve and to help and to heal, uh, to recognize the, the needs of the moment, of the people in front of him, and, and enter in with humility and kindness and, and power. And yet when those who had the most to lose, when religious leaders would come in and, and try to, to undermine him, to challenge him, to push against him, to trap him in argumentation, he, he wouldn't run in fear, but he also wouldn't just go back and attack them in equal measure, but rather he was able to, to maintain a distinction from him, himself to them, and then speak with clarity and conviction, ch rightly challenging and exposing what was going on. We're going to see a, a pretty clear example of how Jesus walked in that beautifully this morning. Um, he, he, he didn't go on the hunt for conflict. He didn't go on the hunt for, you know, how, how do I stir things up? But because he was so clear in his purpose in the world, his identity in the Father, his ability to, to speak into the moment's needs, that conflict would find him. People, people would be frustrated. When you shine a light on our weaknesses... We, we tend to get a little bit uncomfortable. And we can go kind of one, or two, one of two ways. So that's what we're going to see this morning. So I want to pray for us, and we'll look at this passage and see how Jesus led through different groups coming to him, and then what the invitation is, the beautiful invitation is on the other side. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, just your, your presence with us. Thank you that you're... Uh, you are tender and kind, but you draw near to the brokenhearted. And so the things that we're, we're carrying in this morning, uh, you see and you know, and you're, you're with us in that. And the places where our hearts run from you, where we uh, grow cold or passive or frustrated, where we're confused, uh, you're, you're patient. You, you persevere in, in kindness in this steadfast love that, uh, that doesn't get up out of fear or some sort of angsty soul and, and, and get away from us, uh, but rather you, you linger. You know, Jesus, even just beholding again the reality on the cross, that, that the fact that you stayed, you stayed and remained, uh, carrying all of, of the rebellion and the grief and the shame that we carry, you bore that upon yourself. You desire to carry us into the Father's love even this morning. So please, please do that for us. Spirit, please enter in and speak. You know, lay bare the things that need to be, things that we, we want to tuck into the recesses of our hearts. I ask that you would, you would bring them into the light in your kindness. And may we experience again the love of the Father who sees and knows and, and pursues us. I pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so we're in here the, the end of, of Matthew chapter 12. I want to get back up to speed in what's, what's happening in the narrative. Uh, Jesus is on a very clear mission. Now, he states and demonstrates this often. He's ushering in the kingdom of God as the king, as the one who is God taken on flesh. He's ushering in and demonstrating what is the kingdom of God. And, and there's brokenness all around. There's disease and difficulty. There's spiritual brokenness. There's relational brokenness. And he comes and he begins to, to heal and to restore. You know, God did not intend us to, to experience these things. And so when God shows up, when Jesus shows up, his presence begins to set things right. And some people love it. Some people experience his power and his presence and his teaching, and they're drawn in by it. They're experiencing healing and liberation. They're hearing God's word taught in, in reframed and in refreshing ways that actually give life to them. They're giving them genuine and rooted hope. There's this, there's this group of the, of the crowd that's kind of intrigued by what's going on, uh, that they want to kind of hear on the fringes what's happening, maybe follow him around as this works well for us. There's a smaller group that really wants to follow him, to become his apprentices, to become his disciples, to, to, to follow his way of life. But others are skeptical, even his own, his own family, which we'll see at the end of this passage. And some are, are just downright angry, antagonistic to what Jesus is doing, what he's teaching, and how he's challenging the status quo. So there's this mounting division that we begin to see between those who are aligning themselves with Jesus and those that are wanting to push against him, eventually wanting to kill him, to get rid of everything he represents. And this last group that opposes him primarily does so because Jesus, in his self-differentiated way, is challenging their pattern of life. Their pattern of life, their systems of meaning, how they make sense of the world, kind of where they've grown a sense of comfort. He's challenging that with conviction, with truth, with love, but absolutely with clarity. So these scribes and Pharisees that approach Jesus in verse 38, uh, they, they would have been recognized as, as, as desiring to know God, to, to walk with him, to follow him. In the society, they would have been seen that way. It's like, yeah, we're the ones who are studying God's law. Uh, but over time, this, they had manipulated their power. They, they, they had used their position to actually suppress and oppress people. Uh, to use their position and the, their voice uh, to subjugate people, to, to heap on extra demands that God did not give, that they're actually sucking the life out of those they were called to lead into wholeness. And they had established a certain way of life that maintained control and comfort. You know, keeping kind of people and situations and different dynamics in their culture, like submitted to their desires. They had crafted a life that was filtered through their own sense of power and identity. And this is what they preferred. Crafting a life modeled after their own sense of power and identity. And that's what they wanted. Well, Jesus enters in and he starts doing things like healing people on the Sabbath and releasing people from spiritual enslavement and teaching things in a way that, that challenged some of their assumptions. Spending time with people who didn't look like them or act like the, the spiritual elite. And they assume that this, the whole ministry must be of Satan. It can't be of God. It doesn't fit into our paradigm. It doesn't fit into the things that we've grown to expect from God. That's what we looked at last week. When Jesus responds to them by exposing their illogical thinking, essentially calls them bad trees bearing bad fruit. 
It's like, how can you claim to, to be teaching good, th- good things and, and to be good when what you are saying is actually contrary to the very mission of God, to the very presence of God in front of you? You're missing it. And again, why? Because Jesus did not fit their pattern of life and the expectations they had already created for themselves and for who the Messiah would be when he showed up. Jesus did not fit their pattern of life and their expectations that they had already created. He wasn't adhering to all their little laws they had, they had made for, for what God must be like in order to truly be God or to truly be good. So they come to him and say, okay, fine, Jesus, if you truly are from God and have the authority to say these kinds of things, kind of challenging us and, and undermining us in the ways that you are, then prove it. We want to see a sign from you. Which is fascinating because he's been doing sign after sign after sign, healing people, delivering people. And they say, no, 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 we, we want something that we can, we can control. Uh, something that, that is so unambiguous that, uh, that we can get our, get our minds around. Actually, Jesus, if you could just kind of fit into our system of control of what we anticipate by giving us a sign that looks like this, that we believe is true, then maybe we can believe in you. Then maybe I can trust in you. Look with me in verses 39 through 42 in Jesus' response. So they say, we, we wish to see a sign from you. Verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So apparently the numerous signs he had been doing were not sufficient. They wanted something they could get their hands on. They could control. And his argument is, Actually, those who seek a sign in this way to kind of control God, that represents a heart that is of of an evil and evil and adulterous generation, which all throughout the Old Testament was synonymous with idolatry. Jesus is saying at at the very headwaters of your faith, O o religious leaders who are meant to, to lead the people of God in faithfulness, at the very beginning, the very start of it, you are misaligned with the heart of God. You're you're seeking to to build and pattern something after your own desires. And so when when God takes on flesh and enters in right in front of you, you literally become face-to-face with him, you miss him. You miss him because at the very root, you are oriented away from God. Even the Ninevites, even the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south who who sought out Solomon, those who were not part of the covenant people of God, they recognized and something greater is here in front of you. The ministry of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the the true Messiah, God in flesh, the true and better prophet, the true and better king, true and better wisdom, and yet they still could not see it. Again, why can they not see him? Well, because they they couldn't squeeze Jesus into the preconceived expectations of who God was supposed to be. This is our model. This is our paradigm. This is what we expect. And what you're doing, Jesus, does not make sense to us. In order for us to believe in you and to trust you, to let you have your way in our lives, you'll need to give me a sign on my own terms that convinces me. Otherwise, I'm out. This is the heart of the religious leaders. But it's not just them. 
who fall into this temptation. Hop down with me to, to verses 46 through 50. While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told, who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So here we have Jesus' family um, who are, you know, with the text, he's probably still teaching. They're kind of interrupting. They're not on the inside. They're, they're, they're evidently, at least, at least at this point, not true followers of Jesus. Um, they're not in his inner circle. They're kind of on the outside expecting Jesus to, hey, stop what you're doing. We're family. Come talk to us. Like we have something to say to you. You know, we know from other places, Mark 3, John 7, elsewhere, that uh, they weren't too convinced Jesus was the Messiah. They were really convinced he had a whole lot to say to them. And in fact, that there may be a little bit of a, hey, you're bringing some shame on the, on the family name. Like maybe you've taken this itinerant preaching thing a little bit too far. Um, maybe we tone that back a little bit, kind of reel it back in. Um, so they're, they're trying to like corral Jesus to some degree. But here again, we have people who are trying to rearrange Jesus to fit into their pattern of life and expectations. Jesus, you fit into what I've already established. I have a pattern. I have a list. If you are good, if you are God, here are the things you must do. Here are the signs that you must give in order to evidence you are who you say you are. Trying to control Jesus so he will accommodate himself to their system of meaning and value and purpose. Well, Jesus' response would have been shocking to this culture. Biological family was uh, prized above almost all else. And so when family shows up, it's like, hey, you come talk to us. You recognize the value here. And, and we have to know that Jesus is not diminishing the gift of nuclear or extended family or biological family. He's not diminishing that. And the number of places that he, he kind of reprioritizes or relativizes biological family with the spiritual family, he, he's never saying family's not good. He recognizes it is a good gift. He even cares for his mother toward the end. Uh, Matthew highlights that a number of times throughout his gospel. Rather, the point is this, whatever loyalty we feel, whatever devotion we have to others, whether that's biological family or an ideological tribe or a group of friends, whatever loyalty we feel, it must be situated up against a deeper and a higher loyalty to Jesus. His family outside is is disengaged from his actual presence. And Jesus is saying, I'm redefining what family actually is. To, to root it in myself and to root it in, in who I am, what I'm accomplishing, and ultimately to hear the voice of the Father, to relate to one another through the life that he provides. This is the truest sense of family. So we have these religious leaders saying, hey, we, we've got our system of control and comfort that Jesus, you're not fitting into. We have his family, got, got a, you know, friendships or, or relationships marked by, by loyalty and kind of expectations there. And Jesus is not fitting into those either. And yet how often, how often do we do the same thing? We create our systems of meaning and loyalty. We create our patterns that we expect Jesus to fit into. And he simply, lovingly, will not play our games. Often my wife, Erin, when we're, we're, we're driving, if I'm driving, then 
on the interstate maybe, and I have this, this tendency to expect other people um, to kind of follow my way of driving. It's like, I'm going to make my decisions based upon what I think you should do. Well, now is the time to cut over into this lane. Now is the time to speed up a little bit, maybe to slow down, to veer over. And then I'll, I'll make my decisions based upon my expectations for them. Like, this is how you should drive, because that's how I would drive. My wife will have to um, often remind me, you, you cannot control the ways in which they drive. You actually have to respond to what's actually there and not, not kind of put your system of control upon them. Well, how much more, how much more is it dangerous when I try to do this with Jesus? When I try to do this with the God of the universe who has come to love me in the way that I need it, to love us in the way that we actually need to be loved and cared for. We say, oh, but, but, but I have my expectations. I have my system. I have the, the pattern for my life that you need to rearrange yourself to fit into because that's what's going to make you good in my eyes. Then you're a God that's worthy of my trust and my worship. So the scribes and the Pharisees had their tightly controlled system for how to produce the good life. His family found a fundamental loyalty and identity in these relationships. And where do we do the same? Where do we find ourselves trying to maintain control upon life in such a way that produces the results that we think we need to be okay, to be satisfied, to finally have the things that we need? Where have we found a relational loyalty to a political party, to a spouse, to a friend group, uh, to a job or a career track, to, to a certain way of life that we think this is where it's found. This is where I would truly be satisfied. How have we tried to pattern Jesus after our pre-established life and expectations and then grow frustrated with him when he doesn't match up? Well, Jesus, in his love, confronts these expectations. He confronts these patterns that we try to, to, to push upon him. He enters in, and in his kindness, he disrupts them. In his presence, what, what his presence does is actually binds up the spiritual darkness that keeps us enslaved to wrong ways of thinking, and then provides the avenue for us to receive him in the midst of that. But we have to, to choose how we respond. Look with me in verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. You know, in Jesus' original teaching, that section was actually um, attached to an earlier text. Um, actually, if you flip back, probably a page to verse 28, still chapter 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So that, his teaching, 
that we just read actually connects to this portion. We're saying Jesus is the one who enters in and binds up the strong man. He, he clears out the confusion. He clears out the blindness. And he enters in and says, receive me. You come face to face with me. Hear my voice and I'll receive my presence. But there's a danger of approaching God in such a way that says, I want a moral reform. I want kind of a, a cleanup. I, I, want, I want you to, to meet me in my desperation, in the places of, of hurt and pain. But then once things start to settle a little bit, we don't actually receive the presence of Jesus. We're not actually pursuing who Jesus is. We may find a, a way to, to reform ourselves. Perhaps there's a, a new author or podcaster that seems to help us. You know, we get our lives reorganized or we structure things a little bit differently. We find approaches to, to mindfulness. Or we get a sense of control over our lives. We, we may restructure relationships or priorities a little bit or find a new job or a new hobby. The suffering begins to, to move to the margins. We start to feel better about ourselves. Except we still can be missing the pursuit and the presence of Jesus. It still leaves this spiritual vacuum, this void. I mean, dare I say, we can even ruthlessly eliminate hurry and still miss the presence of Jesus. We, we can restructure and rest enough and do the right kinds of things and not invite in and pursue the power and the presence of God by his spirit. We must have Jesus. When, when, we, when we do this, when we remain neutral to who Jesus is, we actually put our, our souls in, a, in really grave danger. When we hear his teaching, we see his way of life, we're confronted with the cross and resurrection, and we're unmoved, we're unimpacted, and we're not actively receiving who he is. I remember several years ago, I was all but forced to, to deal with these, these kind of pockets of shame in my life, um, areas that I kind of tucked away and hadn't really healed from or dealt with, uh, but it was beginning to, to kind of spill out on other people, especially my close relationships. And finally, finally beginning to, to invite Jesus into these places of brokenness and, and heartache. Uh, and it was, it was absolutely disruptive. He begins confronting certain things, sweetly meeting me in places of, of pain that I wanted to, to leave on the back shelf and not actually address to, to name and to see. And over time, through processing and counseling and simply just being honest before God and trusted community, beginning to taste and see God's goodness in ways that I, I hadn't before. Uh, but even there, even there, th th there is this temptation to, to then just grow complacent. Uh, things, things feel a little bit better. Relationships are, are actually in a healthier place now. But missing out on, failing to pursue the genuine presence of Jesus in the midst of that. And Jesus tells us that if we persist in this posture, eventually the state of our souls will be worse than before. You know, he tells this sort of parable there in verses 43 through 45, where, where, where Jesus binds up the strong man, uh, the, the spiritual darkness is, is cast out, confronted with his presence. And then if we remain with this kind of spiritual vacuum, not filling it with and allowing the, 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 the spirit's presence to enter in, that eventually there will be a spiritual darkness that comes back in and, and settles in and roots itself in such a way uh, that we're, we're worse off than we were before. And Jesus longs to be the one who enters in. He longs to be the one who would speak life through his presence in those places. 
And there is a resounding hope that is laced throughout this passage. Uh, four times in this narrative, Jesus mentions this generation. You know, he's, he's, he's pointing not just to a, a couple individuals, but kind of the spirit of the age. Uh, a certain way of thinking, a, a certain way of engaging, of processing that, that is just kind of built into the structure of that society and that culture. Without attempting to or even being aware of it, often we can absorb the perspectives and the assumptions of the, the culture, of the generation, of the spirit of the age around us. After the stories that are being told, the assumptions that are made, the slogans, the messaging all around us, our generation, it's often marked by this self-defined pursuit of affirmation, of comfort, of self-defined pleasure and joy. It's like I want to craft a certain life and then go fill it with the things that I think I need putting desire in the driver's seat of our lives and even of our whole society. And in turn, constraints to our personal visions of delight are viewed as the enemy. Those are the things that have to be cast off, cast away. And in the process, we can miss the presence of Jesus calling us to, to the something greater that is in our midst. With the stark and often harsh words of Jesus, there always stands the invitation to receive him, to turn again, to hear his voice, and to enter into these sweet places of intimacy with him. First, Jesus points to this sign of Jonah. And he tells the, the scribes and Pharisees, like, hey, I'm not going to give you a sign in the way that you want it, but I will give you a sign. It's one that actually has already been given. It's already in the scriptures that you've been reading. It's in the prophet of Jonah. That he was three days in the belly of the great fish, and then near death came back, preached, and there was genuine repentance from that place. And I will be the one who fulfills this. I will be the one through my life, through my ministry, to carry all of your rebellion, to carry all of your shame, to carry all of your brokenness, all the places where we tend to run from God over and over and over again. He says, I will take all of that upon myself. And I will bear that on the cross and then rise to new life and invite you to trust me, to see me, to enjoy me, to know that I, the, the life that I put on offer, to restore you to the Father. So there is this profound invitation to come and meet with the Jesus who has died for you and who rose again for you. Second, Jesus invites us to kind of under the hood into the spiritual realm to see that he cast out the spiritual darkness by the power of his spirit and then desires for us to welcome his presence in, in that place. To not just kind of morally reform or restructure a few things or to, to feel like we're good enough in our own strength, but rather have our hearts ready, have our souls be open to the very presence of Jesus, inviting him to fill each corridor, each corner, each facet of our lives with his voice and with his tenderness. And third, he desires to make us part of his new family. And we see that at the very end, redefining, rel relativizing family up against who he is. And he says, here is where true relationship, true intimacy with one another, true reconciliation is found. This is how family is defined. It's, it's centered on hearing the voice of the father, hearing his invitation to do his will, which is found in following Jesus the one that he sent, the one that he gave to us to follow as his disciples. 
The church is an imperfect bunch. We, we fail each other in countless ways. We're prone to selfishness. We're prone to self-protection. We're prone to, to harm one another with our words, with our, with our actions. And yet what a gift, what a sweet gift that God has given in his spiritual family. That we, we can live reconciled to one another through the broken body, broken body and shed blood of Jesus. To know that we're invited into this new set of relationships seeking to lay down our lives for the thriving of one another, rooted in that work of Jesus. So this is the invitation that I want us to receive this morning. Yes, we have this tendency to, uh, to build systems and patterns and ways of being uh, that don't, don't fully align with who Jesus is. And we grow shocked and surprised and frustrated with him when he doesn't kind of rearrange himself to fulfill all of our desires, to, to give us those signs that we expect that he will. And yet on the other side, he invites us to something so much greater. The Jesus who actually is. The Jesus who came to lay down his life for us. The Jesus who is love, who knows what we need, when we need it, and how we need it. And is willing to give that to us as we trust him. As we come up under his reign, the voice of the Father. Trusting him as he is rather than trying to rearrange him into our perspectives and our patterns. So let us receive him. Let us trust him. Let us hear from him. I actually want to create um, a little bit of space for us uh, to even consider now. Where are the places that I, I tend to do this? Where are the places that I tend to, uh, to expect Jesus to be a certain way and for him to pattern himself after us rather than us coming up under who he is? So a couple questions for us. I want to create some time just to, in the stillness to, to consider, to allow the spirit to, to search us and to know us. So first question is this. What patterns or expectations are you trying to rearrange Jesus into? Right now, what, what patterns, what expectations, what signs, what, what, what particulars are you trying to rearrange Jesus to fit into? And second, how is the disruption currently in your life, the disruption that you're feeling, maybe in relationships, maybe in season of life, maybe in missed expectations, maybe in disappointment, maybe in suffering, how are those disruptions an invitation to a richer trust and intimacy with Jesus? So let's take a few minutes even now, just in the stillness, before we take communion, now to allow the Spirit to, to search us, to know us, to sweetly convict us, and to offer, uh, to, to extend his offer, uh, to experience him afresh. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to come to you. I thank you that it's your, your kindness that leads us to repentance. 
And truthfully, I, I thank you that you don't rearrange yourself to fit into our expectations. And we're, we're often self-deceived. We're often confused as to what the, the path toward life really entails. And so your willingness to, to be differentiated enough from us, uh, to not get sucked in by our own uh, patterns or anxieties, but rather be able to, to stand present and attentive to us, caring for us, knowing the details of what we're walking through, not running from, uh, but also speaking into uh, with clarity in ways that bring us up under uh, your, your good reign, your affection. Yes, I ask that, that we would welcome the disruption that we feel, that we would welcome the, the challenge that you bring, because we know on the other side of that, there's, a, there's an invitation to, to taste and see more of your goodness, uh, to drink deeply of, of your kindness and the Father's voice that, that roots us in a different identity, that calls us to a different pattern, uh, one that, that actually leads to, to joy and satisfaction. So please help us toward that end. Uh, allow us to, to receive your invitation and to hear your voice as, as better than every other competing voice that, that we tend to be drawn after. And to know that you are wise and that you have uh, brought us near to the Father in order to, uh, to experience the, the deep, rich satisfaction that you provided for us. And I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media, Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.